Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Um, the, the slightly empty seats at the front and the, uh, uh, the gathering numbers towards the back reminds me what a good Baptist church you are, uh, uh, as is typical of many, uh, many churches. The, the front rows um, uh, know not just when scientific experiments are taking place, but uh, on other occasions. On one uh, very famous occasion, a Baptist preacher was, came to a church, not unlike this, uh, and noticed there were empty rows at the front, but it, it got fuller towards the back, and he, he made the mistake of expressing it like this. He said, I notice it's emptier at the front, but thicker towards the back, uh, which, which is not ideal or rude to those who are further, uh, further back this morning. Um, thank you, James, for your leadership. Um, can I drink this, or is there something in it? This one, okay. It's quite useful. Um, I'll try not to comment on uh, uh, the Brighton v Manchester United uh, um, issue, apart from, with my normal grace, uh, uh, say to James uh, that you must serve the Lord in your way, and I'll, and I'll serve him in his. Uh, so... Uh, <coughs> So we're glad to be sharing God's Word together this morning. And if you're watching this uh, at home, uh, God bless you. If you're here in the congregation, uh, then please uh, think uh, about how you might access the Scripture, either with your Bible open or on the screen in, uh, behind me. The words are going to appear from our passage. I'm going to talk through it firstly, uh, kind of verse by verse, brief comment on what uh, Dr. Luke writes here in his gospel, and then when we've done that, I'll reflect a little on the challenges uh, that this passage brings to us this morning. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my wife and I are delighted to be here uh, on this beautiful morning, and by the way, um, in a stunning building. You, uh, I hope, will never stop being grateful for this amazing building, just to sit there and look out through the cross into the outside world and this window onto the street full of shops uh, should be a weekly reminder that we exist, that those who are not here will know this great love of Jesus Christ. It was Archbishop William Temple over a century ago who first made the observation that the church is the only club that exists for the benefit of non-members. Uh, and uh, that's a really critical insight. And you guys have got it in spades looking out here. Just amazing building. So thank God that you're here in the heart of this town uh, and uh, serving him here. I pray that this building will be used strategically, that your leaders will be given great wisdom. And we pray that the, the uh, choice of a new leader here, Pastor, uh, will be blessed by God and you'll, uh, you'll have the joy and the energy uh, of... Um, the period of, of new life. The first year in the life of a new pastor is particularly energizing because everything is so, uh, is so fresh, a kind of honeymoon period, uh, though our current prime minister seems not to have experienced such a long uh, uh, period of honeymoon uh, in her leadership. So we're praying that uh, God will really raise up the right person to lead you, and uh, it's great to be here thinking and praying about that. Well, uh, our theme this morning is about the cost of discipleship, quite a, a tough and difficult theme in a way, uh, and the passage is Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 25 through to 35, those uh, uh, 11 verses in total. And as you can see on the screen, you'll, you'll see parts of that together. So, 
This is uh, uh, the story of Dr. Luke. Uh, appropriate for us to remember that the Gospels have particular uh, foci. So Matthew's Gospel uh, is really explaining to Jewish people the way Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew is full of Old Testament quotations in order to remind Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke's gospel has far less Old Testament quotations. Why? Because it's aimed at Theophilus, who was a Gentile. It's aimed at Gentiles, like most of us, I guess, are here this morning. So Dr. Luke's message is for Gentiles down the ages, specifically, explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, not just for Jewish people, but for the whole world. And so this gospel narrative unfolds. Uh, Dr. Luke, with his, uh, what by our standards would be rudimentary medical skills, but a clearly a thoughtful guy, his, his Greek writing, you know, the gospel's written in Greek, is uh, uh, clearly, you know, the Greek of someone who's educated, and he's writing to this thoughtful pretty cynical group of non-Jews saying Jesus matters. And Luke's gospel up to this point is about the miracles, the, the great dynamic inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, the uh, feeding of hungry people. The gospel of Luke's just full of this dynamic Jesus who's changing his environment. And so no wonder this verse that we start with is true. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. No wonder. Wouldn't you follow someone who was wandering through the countryside, healing people, feeding them? I mean, it was amazing, a time of enormous enthusiasm. So large crowds following Jesus as he makes his way, not by the direct route, but meandering slightly by our standards, to Jerusalem. This crowd is thrilled with the miracle stuff. They believe he's heading for victory to kick out the Romans and to build a new empire. But he's headed to the cross. Jesus is about to disillusion a rather large number of people. They think he's on the way to empire and he's on his way to the cross. Jesus is trying to turn them from spectators to recruits. A very different paradigm and model that he wants to help people understand. So these are large crowds traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, uh, great to see you guys. We're all on the same team. No, he didn't quite say that. He says this to them. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, if you were involved in marketing, in PR, you'd say to Jesus, you know, you've got to tone that down a bit, really. Your people are going to be put off by that. If, you, if you're going to want them to follow you in large numbers, you really need to be saying, come and follow me, and it's probably going to mean free food. 5,000 of them got a free lunch. It's probably going to mean if you're sick, you get better. It's going to, it's going to be exciting. That, that's, that's your message, Jesus. Your brand is going to be tarnished by this message. People are going to be put off following you. Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by that PR advice. He says, actually, my call to you is to love me so much that any other human love will feel like hatred. Now, do remember that there's no emphasis in the whole of the Bible about God uh, as the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New, about him asking people to hate each other. 
Um, you remember Jesus speaks in this kind of very Jewish, hyperbolic way uh, often. Talks about camels going through the eyes of needles. I mean, clearly... <laughs> Camels aren't going to go through eyes of needles. And so the Jewish way of speaking is often by way of a, a hyperbole, exaggeration, to make a very significant point. So Jesus is saying, uh, it matters. Commitment to me is sold out stuff. It's not simply uh, turning up in a large crowd expecting a miracle or some food. So it's not really a call for us to hate our husband or wife or children, obviously. But it is a call to recognize that the demands of Christ are supreme. As the, uh, the preachers of a century and a half ago used to say, uh, Jesus must not just be resident in our lives, he must be president in our lives. Uh, and that little phrase helpfully identifies the call to discipleship and the serious nature of it. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross was a cruel instrument, uh, largely used by the Romans uh, and mainly used for the death of runaway slaves. Uh, and uh, some of you will have seen uh, cinematographic uh, pictures of this, you know, Spartacus and others, where hundreds were crucified at the same time. Pretty uh, cruel, uh, lingering death, sadly, but a, a relatively common picture in the ancient world, but we'll come back to that. And then he talks about the cost of discipleship being ready and prepared. He says this, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you sit down first and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? In other words, think ahead. Don't just do something. Don't just choose to follow me. Think about the consequence of that. It's going to demand all of you going to demand all of you. This is why the Jesus' sales pitch is so poor by today's standards. He says, it's going to demand all of you, not, not just some of you. It's not a kind of easy believism. It's, that's not going to work. You've got to sit down and think about the consequences. Quite a lot of my uh, work uh, is both reading and thinking uh, 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 about the way the gospel intersects the political and the economic situation, not just of our nation, but in situations around the world. And, and government officials are now saying perfectly openly that they didn't think seriously enough about the effect that the mini-budget was going to have. Now, leaving aside whether it was good budget or bad budget, that's another question, Everybody now admits they didn't think seriously enough about the consequences of the decisions they were taking. And we know in everyday life, it's really crucial to say to yourself, if this happens, what will be the result? If you give your life to Jesus, let's say this morning, you're an interested observer on Christian faith, you didn't take communion, you were thinking about faith issues, you're just mulling it over, that's great, welcome. But you ought to sit down and say to yourself, what is it going to mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because it isn't just part of a large crowd. There are going to be some significant costs involved. So Jesus uses the building metaphor. And then in verse 31, he uses the warfare metaphor. Or suppose a king's about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? In other words, he thinks seriously about what's going to happen when he declares war. We know because of a range of military strategists that President Putin believed that when he invaded Ukraine, it was all going to be over inside a week. Really, he did think that. 
And he hadn't clearly understood the limitations of his own military, nor the power of resistance, nor the capacity of NATO forces to engage and to disapprove of his action. And, and so we now find ourselves in the middle of a horrific war, about to stretch into a grotesque period of a winter in Central Europe, which is going to be horrible for everybody concerned, including the numbers of newly recruited Russian soldiers who've had no training, who are now being returned back to their parents this week in body bags, with no training at all, lambs to the slaughter. And clearly this has been a political military adventure without sitting down and thinking about what might happen. And so President Putin is now trapped and in a corner because of the decision he's made. And that's, of course, why a number of observers are concerned about potential nuclear activity and so on. So there's clear daily, monthly, political, ordinary, everyday illustrations here from Jesus. Think about the decision you make and the consequences that are likely to come. And so he says, verse 33, in the same way, As you think before you build a tower and think before you declare war, so think about following me because those of you who do not give up everything, you can't be my disciples. Amazingly challenging words. Now, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean the kind of monastic lifestyle. We should sell everything we have and and go and and live in a monastery or in the desert place, uh, so on, away from life. But it does mean, if Christianity is to be appropriately understood, that it's not simply a religion, although it's often described as one of the world's great religions, it's a relationship that makes radical demands on us that we are ready to do whatever this master asks us to do. And then he ends with another uh, salty metaphor. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty Again, in other words, um, it's really important that you don't just be this person, the radical disciple, now, today, a big decision, I'm going to follow you wholeheartedly. But this is a repeating decision, because the salt needs to keep its savour if it's going to be any good. And he ends with this phrase that a lot of the parables seem to touch down with. Whoever has ears to hear, and and obviously he doesn't mean this physically, (laughs) Almost 100% of the people in this room have two ears. Whoever has ears to hear, hearing and listening are different things, aren't they? To really hear. Um, Occasionally, uh, my wife will be talking to me at home. (laughs) And, And she'll be, they'll be, you know, I'll be aware of a kind of background hum. And, uh, and then she'll say to me, are you listening to me? And I will say, of course, as a good husband, yes. And then she asks me a really, really rude and difficult question. She says, what did I just say? And then I quickly scrabble around in my mind to wonder if there was something in the dim recesses of my mind that I can hang a hook on and and claim, hopefully, that that I'm in the right track. Because there's a great difference, isn't there, between hearing something and actually hearing 
it. So Jesus is saying to this crowd that are following him, look, of course you can all hear my voice. You hear me speaking, obviously. But listen, I'm, I'm challenging you to really hear what I'm actually saying and to respond to it. So, so that's the way Dr. Luke uh, expounds all of these, uh, all of these processes. Uh, so let's reflect just for a few moments on some of the challenges which emerge from this passage um, away from some of the detail of the individual verses. Uh, firstly, you notice that this idea about carrying your cross, you've got perfectly correctly uh, at the center of the front here, the image of the cross. Uh, Jesus is going to physically carry a cross to his death, and he uses a metaphor for discipleship, meaning you die to the old way of life. But what's important, and it's picked up in the salty theme, is that this is what's called a, you know, a present continuous tense, something that's going to go on. Take up your cross, as he says elsewhere in the Gospels, daily. Take up your cross and keep taking it up. And uh, I uh, uh, married um, somebody last night. Uh, I mean, I am married, obviously. Uh, but I married somebody else last night um, uh, at a, a celebration, very uh, uh, posh, uh, big museum in, uh, in uh, Oxford, a- and vows were exchanged and so on, promised to love and cherish and, and, and so on. Uh, uh, but the important thing about that event and about marriage events generally is that, of course, anybody can be warm and glowing and in love on that special day. You know, the bride looks beautiful and blah, blah, all of that. But it's present continuous, isn't it? The trick about a good marriage is not did you have a great service on one day. It's whether the love continued and continues to develop and flourish and grow. And of course, tragically, that's not always true. But we know that in any relationship, not just marriage, but friendship or parent-child and so on, that love has to be continually given. I told my wife on our wedding day that I loved her. I'm sure we've been married over 40 years. It would be a tragedy if I'd never told her that again in 40 years. And if she said to me one day, you know, a few years into our marriage, well, Steve, you never tell me you love me. And I said, well, you're a ridiculous woman. I told you on the day we got married. I haven't changed my mind. Well, I mean... You, you see the illogicality of that. So it's, it's an everyday, ongoing, continuous thing. So Jesus is saying, you take up your cross daily, continually. I want you to be taking up your cross. I want you to be salty permanently. Salty today, salty tomorrow, salty in the future. This is how you now need to be right now and on and on and on. So the call to discipleship isn't simply a call to a one-off act in a moment. Of course Praying a prayer, like we had this morning. Wonderful start to the whole process. But it's a start. Because what Jesus had in mind was a daily walk with him in which we died to ourselves and put him first in our lives, consciously saying each day, Lord, whatever it is you want today, I want to be obedient to your will. I know you want the best for me. I know you want the best for those around me. Please make me sensitive today to dying to the desires I have to be noticed, to want my own way, all those things which all of us have within us to varying degrees. Uh, But today I want to be 
someone who prays, Lord, we want to please you today. So this is present continuous thing about discipleship, which is really important. And then to recognize that when Jesus talks about hating father and mother and even the cross allusion, he's talking about the seriousness of following him and the cost of this discipleship process. And this time last week, just a week ago, I was uh, preaching in uh, Delhi in uh, India and I've had communion uh, in the context of a service and uh, it was great. I was preaching through an interpreter uh, and great to be able to talk about the good news of Jesus in that context. However, what I was reminded of was not just the similarities of this Sunday and last Sunday, but the differences and the sheer oppression for being a Christian for them with a Hindu fundamentalist nation providing the political environment, whereas we have our own freedoms here. And so the cost of discipleship varies from culture to culture. Here, the cost to us of being a follower of Jesus is you might get mocked a bit at work and people tease you for being a Christian or they think you're odd because you've got strange views about sexuality or about any number of things. It's relatively mild, the persecution most of us experience. Many of the countries that I visit um, around the world, particularly uh, uh, in an Islamic context, Uh, it's the end of the world, almost literally, if you choose to follow Jesus. And this phrase about hating father and mother, I remember with uh, enormous sadness uh, speaking at a very large church in Cairo uh, on one occasion and meeting afterwards some uh, MBBs, as they're called, Muslim background believers, who, um, who had been completely disowned by their parents. And the relationship was totally broken with their own parents. They were, they were devastated by it, but chosen to follow Jesus. And I thought of this verse and the cost for them of following Jesus and the relative non-cost for us in following him. And so we must remind ourselves this morning that to pray for those for whom the cost of discipleship is incredibly difficult. This morning, right now, in country after country around the world. And it's fairly clear that totalitarian regimes have used the lockdown protocols, which were used in response to COVID, to oppress their uh, people. And so the world is now a much less open place than it was three years ago. That is the reality of our whole world. The freedom that many countries had has been closed off and that freedom. There are pastors in many countries of the world who are in prison today, and the excuse was given that they broke COVID regulations. They didn't break COVID regulations, but it was a wonderful mechanism for stopping the gospel and persecuting pastors. So we have to be aware that it's a tough world, and that the cost of following Jesus on planet Earth is often really demanding, whereas for us, the cost of following Jesus is relatively, relatively modest. Now, some of us are in difficult home situations or family and following Jesus is pretty tough and I don't want to diminish that. But for most of us, compared with that world, it's a relatively simple thing. And the other thing that Jesus is trying to address here, and this is so important in contemporary Western society, is he's trying to address triviality. 
trying to address the superficiality of culture. Uh, and so on. You know, we, we do live in a really superficial, trivial world. You do, you do know that, don't you? Um, come with me just uh, back in February. I'm uh, waking up uh, in a hotel room in Dallas, and uh, I, s- I can't sleep, jet lag and so on. Turn the TV on. And the first thing is it's commercials. If you've been to America, American television is dire. Uh, and, uh, not, I'm not just talking about the content. I'm talking about the fact that every seven minutes there's a commercial break. Uh, really, really annoying. Uh, and so I'm Twitch TV on, it's five o'clock in the morning or something. And the first thing I see is the commercial break, and I hear this sentence What could be more important than being confident about your hair? <laughs> right. That's the phrase I hear. What could be more important than being confident about your hair? And I'm thinking, as I wander into the shower, you know, I think that every morning. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that is so true. Gosh, I get up, I say, oh, I hope my hair's all right. It's so crucial. And, of course, this marketing world in which we live, in which people are trying to sell us stuff all the time, breeds this kind of triviality. And, of course, social media and Twitter and so on Helpful though those things can be at times, they can lead to a world in which a one-sentence diagnosis is all you need. I occasionally work with the people in the medical profession, and sometimes they uh, uh, say to me, not, not usually GPs, but, but, um, but consultants and people um, doing um, scientific uh, inquiries for vaccines and so on, um, if you talk to some members of general practice... They'll tell you stories about how the fact that someone will come and see them and, uh, or even speak to them on the phone these days uh, with a phone consultation. The first thing the doctor will say is, you know, apart from, you know, the rather strange question that some doctors ask, which is, how are you? And then you reply, fine, to which the only appropriate response is, well, get off the phone then. <laughs> and, and so doctors say... One of the things that frustrates them is someone who comes on the phone and says, I've been feeling this symptom, doctor, and I was on the internet last night, and I googled the symptom, and it says this drug really works, so can I have it? And, and doctors say, well, that may be right, but, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I'd like to talk to you about, because that's such a superficial way of diagnosing it. Because, you know, the internet is full of information, but very short on wisdom. Well, that's quite an important distinction. And so we live in this grotesquely superficial world in which the one-sentence answers to things, and we're getting told to be absorbed because even uh, uh, the national broadcast of the BBC seems obsessed with celebrity. Does it really matter what some woman somewhere is wearing to go out for the evening? Or the repeated phrase on Facebook or other social media sites in which people post drinking coffee in Starbucks. I thought, gosh, how did my life go on before I knew these people were drinking coffee somewhere? And so we had this massive welter of superficiality and trivia about our lives. And it invades and affects us. And it has become, particularly in post-modernity over the last 25 years, incredibly narcissistic and self-focused. So the world becomes trivial and self-focused. So we say to ourselves, well, what matters is, is, is what I want. I, I, I'd, I'd like this. 
And so, of course, when my parents went out for coffee, if they ever did, um, 40 years ago, um, there was coffee. You could have it with milk or without, right? Uh, Nowadays, it's just stunning to see the array of possible choices when you visit a coffee shop. You can have it your way, as the advertising goes. It's all about what you want. We can tailor it to you. And so the world becomes increasingly focused around us. And actually, the only hope for the world is for it to be increasingly focused around God and away from ourselves. And so Jesus is being clear here that the cost of discipleship is a challenge to casualness and crowd following. And it's a challenge to triviality and superficiality Because what he calls us to this morning, knowing that there are deep challenges that many of us are going through just by being alive, not by being a Christian, just by living on planet Earth. Employment, job worries, worries about marriage or family or concerns about our children or grandchildren. Of course we live in a broken world, as James was saying earlier in his experiment. But into that pain, we are invited to follow the one who carried his own cross and invites us to carry it too, day by day, by inviting him to be the Lord of our lives, to be a disciple in the fullest sense, in the sense this passage envisages, and so that what we have uh, is maybe not large crowds, but we do have women and men who are sold out to the agenda of Jesus and his amazing love so that when people see us totally in love with this Jesus and following him those who look in from the outside as they walk past those who live next door to us those who work in the same office as us are aware even though we articulate very little that there's a driving principle in our lives which is very different And so may God help us be the disciples Luke's gospel imagines in the middle of all our challenges to be very aware that we want Jesus to be not just Lord, but Lord of all. So that if that's true, it is not just the best way for the world to see true discipleship, but it is the best way to be humanly flourishing. For some strange reason, when we lay down our lives, we get them back. In the fullest way. In the Jesus way. And so pray this morning that we'll all come to this Jesus. Today, in a new sense of radical obedience, but in the months to come. As those who go on being salty. In this church, in Haywards Heath and around the world. Please allow me to pray. We pause for a moment to pray for those for whom the cost of discipleship is incredibly high today. For Ukrainian believers holding services in bomb shelters this morning. 
breaking bread and drinking wine as we have done. Be gracious to them, Lord, we pray. For those who find themselves under the thumb of oppressive government regimes, grant them courage and wisdom and a special dose today of your loving grace. And for us, in whatever challenges we face in our world, fill us again with the power of your Holy Spirit and give us a love for you which cannot be overcome. And make us every day the kind of salty people who make the world around us taste good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.